Hello and welcome to the CEO Blind Spot Show, where leaders reveal their blind spots and best practices. I'm your host, Birgit Kams, and today's guest is Bob Schrage, who has been a CEO in the private sector, a board member, a professor, and a leader of several organizations prior to retiring. In addition, he has won several awards for historic preservation and is an author of eight books. So welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's not often that I get a leader who has led in so many different organizations. And even though you're technically retired, I know you're once again leading in another organization. So first of all, what drives you to keep leading? Well, you know, it's it's funny. I, I've really enjoyed uh, my career and the position I have now. If it was a full-time job, managing a whole bunch of people, I wouldn't be doing it. But it's uh, I'm serving as the executive director of a statewide organization that supports city and county managers, which has always been a you know a big focus of mine in the fact that I, I really enjoy local government and I enjoy professional local government and I enjoy the, the nonprofit sector and probably more anything that motivates me more. It, it is the fact that I just really believe in strong, effective, and efficient nonprofit organizations, because I think they really make a big impact in society. So I, I've come back to having a part-time job, and, and I really enjoy it. And it's something that uh, it gives me the opportunity to do a lot of traveling, which I like, but also to still you know keep my foot in the uh, in the ring and on the pulse of the sector. Well, and, and some could argue that if you go into the nonprofit world, it's it's actually harder to lead people. So what, what would you say are one or two of your best practices when it comes to leading people toward a desired outcome? Well, I, it's funny. I, I think that a, a lot of that, of course, like any good manager, any good leader, you know, you've learned it from trial and error. And I've certainly made lots of errors over the course of my career. But I think, you know, if I was to pinpoint top couple to answer your question, one of them is, is the fact that, and, and this is obviously true in the, in the for-profit sector too, but it, it's, it takes a lot of work and a dedication and a commitment to keep, uh, in my case, I, I've had as many as 85 employees under me, and to keep 85 employees focused and to keep them all committed. And in, in, in every organization I've been in, every department has had a completely different kind of service that they provided. And to keep that entire team motivated and, and morale takes a lot of commitment and you've got to pay attention to it. And, and morale is probably, I think, one of the things that I've always tried to focus on because so often morale in an organization can just fall apart. And I really believe that watching morale is like, the, or morale is like the stock market. I mean, it can go up and it can go down and then it levels level off and then it can go up and it can go down. And I think a good manager and a good leader knows every day, if not every week, let's say, where the morale of their organization is. Is it up and is it down? And I think that takes a lot of commitment and a lot of communications to uh, to figure that out. Well, and- if I may interrupt, this might be a positive blind spot of yours, because my experience right now, especially, there's a lot of leaders who are surprised by resignations and they were surprised that the morale was as bad as it was. So what? how specifically did you keep your your pulse on the morale? Well, first of all, I would talk to my department heads. We, we would obviously communicate all the time. We would have weekly meetings, and they know that one of my 
philosophies and one of my approaches to always keep the pulse on. So I can't do it all the time. I don't, I'm not going to necessarily be communicating on a, a daily basis with, with the employees. And it's so with every employee, and I'm not going to be going around all the department heads to find out happy an employee is. But one of them is certainly an expectation that that is a priority in the organization. Mm-hmm. But I also think that when you notice that the morale of an organization is going on the negative side, you need to do something about it and you need to do something about it timely. And I didn't always do that. And I've certainly had many managers uh, that completely ignore the morale of the organization. And it's uh, it's like a cancer that can, can, can just envelop the organization. So I think you've got to have your, your leaders on the same page. I mean, I think that's a key part of it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And then you said you clearly got the message across that it was a priority for you that your leaders were in touch with that. And you really have seen a lot in history of what people have done, including, I think in one of your books, you refer to the governor who pardoned his own son for murder. And how much of that helped shape your interest in having good morale? I think history's really helped me see where people have had ethical lapses in the past or when, when they've made judgments and stuff that didn't hold an ethical standard. That's where I've really seen it. Like in the case of that governor, obviously that's a, it was a, it was a bad issue and it was an unethical issue. Now my own personal history, I've learned lessons that I think are, are really good. I mean, I think another one of my lessons that you can see in history that repeats itself is so much of history is, is people not managing issues. And I always would preach the idea that particularly in the organizations that I ran, perception is such a big part of what the public thinks about what you're trying to do. In the reality, you don't manage the issue and, and perception gets going. Even if it's not based in fact, you've lost what you're trying to do. Mm. And, and I think I've seen that a whole lot in history. I mean, I can think of cases where I've studied in my job the, the merger of 911 dispatching centers probably five or six times before it ever happened. And the reason it failed every time was because in the public, the issue wasn't managed and you didn't anticipate issues and you didn't manage them. And so people, for example, this is just one example, would say, well, we don't want to merge 911 systems because it'll take longer for ambulances or police to respond. Well, in reality, you could have your not your 911 system 100 miles away and it wouldn't affect response rate. But every one of those cases is probably lost because of that. Well, then, of course, I have to ask, when did you discover you had a leadership blind spot? Well, I, one of the leadership blind spots in those cases of managing the issue is not being, I don't know if aggressive is the is the word, but just directly involving that up front. And because my board and everybody were elected officials, you know, and generally speaking, you had this philosophy that, okay, the elected officials always right. And your job is to, to do things and make them look good and have good projects and, and all that kind of stuff. So my blind spot certainly was not preaching that we've got to anticipate these issues and advising them. These are the issues. I mean, it's an aggressiveness. You know, sometimes you just can't be too timid. And I, and, and I learned to view conflict as an opportunity. Mm. And uh, I think when you look at conflict as an opportunity, these cases, you actually grow a lot as a manager, both as a manager of people, but as a man, and also as a manager of, of, uh, of projects, because hidden within every conflict is the, 
is just, it's a tremendous teaching opportunity and it's a tremendous opportunity just to be straightforward with people. And I think people respect that more than you being timid in managing the project. So what was the aha moment where you realized I might be avoiding this or I might not be addressing the perception and I didn't know I had an issue and now I know I have it. Oh, I think it, I think it comes through, um, this is too strong of a word probably, but failure or just thinking this is a great opportunity and everybody agrees that it's a great opportunity and it still doesn't happen. Using the 911 example that I, that I just did, the area that where, where I studied that so many times, I mean, think about this in two counties, there were five 911 operations. Mm. Anybody knows two counties should have one. And the one time that we reached a conclusion, I completely trusted the process, wasn't overly aggressive. It seemed to be going the right way. It voted unanimously out of this committee. And then it goes back to the local 91 operators and the, the cities and counties that did it. And it died in every one of them because uh-huh. the elected officials got there and then they heard some complaints. We need to have local control or it's going to take too long. And all these perceptions and every one of them just catered. You know? Yeah. And, so checking points are needed. Yeah. And working on those kind of projects, you come to realize that it's incremental and that change, particularly in the nonprofit and the, I think the governmental sector, I'm not going to say everything is slow and all that. There's a lot of great governments that are very efficient local governments, but so many projects are incremental and particularly regional projects. A lot of the studies that I did were to bring governments together, in some ways merge the government. And you start out with, maybe you're going to, maybe you're going to bring the fire departments from two communities together. And then people see that that works out. And then you go to the next success and patience is really a virtue. Wow. Well, it sounds like it's a dance between patience and aggressively checking in about perceptions. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and, I, and we've been mostly talking about in the positions that I've had where I've run an organization and we did these kind of projects to, to try to bring about better efficiency, effectiveness between you know, governments. And these issues also exist in, in just more traditional nonprofits. Absolutely. I mean, we had an example on the managing perceptions issue where we were trying to locate a drug and alcohol treatment facility in the neighborhood, which was five miles away, was up in arms. And one of the key ways to bring organizations together is to have a, have a respected member of the community who can lead it, not some bureaucratic staff member like myself. And so until the police chief of that community come up and said, you know, it's false, the location of a, of a treatment facility does not increase crime, then it was only in that point where somebody credible and from their community said it that we were able to, relo- able to locate it. Mm-hmm. as an example. So yeah. the, the lesson that I evolved into thinking too, and I think made a tremendous impact was just, I, I came to the conclusion, I need to hire by attitude. I can't teach it. Mm. And I, I mean, I can teach somebody to do the duties of almost any job, but I can't hire attitude and I can't train attitude and I can't teach attitude. And I think that was a a lesson in that um, that I learned. Coming from that, I think also was the idea of not being afraid to hire somebody with skills that are that you don't have, and and hire somebody who's better than you, because ultimately it makes you look better. 
and the organization looked better. I think I learned all those lessons through trial and error. And was there a particular moment in your career where you knew how important attitude would be? Certainly not at the beginning. I can't pinpoint a certain time, but I, I think it really came from hiring people and just experience. And often in case they come on board and the attitudes just wasn't there. And I struggle and probably would still struggle to improve people's attitude because they either have a good attitude or they, they don't. And I've never really come up with a perfect way to manage the attitude more than hiring the right person in the first place that you're, you're able to figure that out. Mm, yeah. And so I, I can imagine then when companies face crisis times, like a lot of leaders did recently, that that's one of the keys to making it through crisis is to have people who've got a good attitude. Oh, I agree. So then as we start to wrap up the show, thing that you've been through that you want to yeah, help well, leaders with? Well, as it relates to organizations, I, I mean, I think one of the things I've seen is a lot of young organizations, not nonprofits, not make it. And even some that have become seasoned. And I've certainly seen a lot of experiences where some nonprofits that start out stay young, for example. And in and, and nonprofit organizations, when people start out a nonprofit, they can't stay young forever. They've got to create that internal infrastructure that's mm -hmm. going to allow them to be success. I've seen nonprofits, and I've learned this because I've done it myself, where you go out and seek the dollars and you chase the money and you lose the, the mission. Mm. And I've seen that affect so many nonprofits. And I've done it myself because you, you want to, you know, money, 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 and you go after it. But you can have too much diversification if you can in an organization. So Okay. Well, I also happen to know that your latest book is called The Hidden History of Kentucky Political Scandals. And I know that book and the seven others that you have can all be found on Amazon. But is there anything else you'd like to say about that book? Well, that's probably been one of my most enjoyable books to read because number one, it, it was a sort of a, it's a statewide book and it, it's amazing how many political scandals exist in the state of Kentucky. However, I conclude early on that Kentucky is probably no different than any other state. But I think when you when you read the book, it goes all the way from the beginning of Kentucky was created as a state in the late 1700s. It, al it already had some political scandals. It had political scandals from land surveyors before it was ever a state. And so, and it goes all the way to today. But it's a good lesson in, in the ways to self-improvement and continuous improvement, because certainly in any state, and maybe some of the listeners will disagree with this, it pay today pales in comparison to what scandals were like years ago. Mm. We have a lot of ethics codes and and, and we see a lot of crazy politics and, and stuff, but in some ways, it, the, the true scandals pale in comparison to the number and the severity of, of what used to exist. I well, mean, Bob, I think that would, sounds like that's a good book for organizations to read to increase morale, because it sounds like that'll give them hope that today's not so bad. I think that's a great idea. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to be on the show and to share your experiences. And, and clearly, you continue to contribute in so many ways, including via your books. So thank you again for being on the show. Oh, happy to, happy to be here. Thank you so much.